0: Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Greetings, everybody, and welcome back with Chapter 8 of Mosiah. We've got a new storyline, and the action is picking back up in this book. In chapter 7, we were introduced to a few new characters, two of the most important being a Mulekite named Ammon, who was sent by Mosiah to track down lost Nephite tribes, and a king of the lost Nephites named Limhi. And as luck would have it, Ammon and Limhi find each other, and after some initial mutual suspicion, they make the connection, and once again, there's contact between the Nephite kingdom in Zarahemla and the Nephite kingdom in the land of Lehi-Nephi. But, as we learned in chapter seven, things haven't gone all that well for the Nephites in the land of Lehi-Nephi. They are, in fact, in bondage to the Lamanites, and Limhi seems to think that it's really their own fault, particularly because Limhi's father, Noah, had a prophet of a god executed. However, despite their decades of suffering, oppression, and loss, Limhi still insists that his people need to trust in that same god who led Moses and the Israelites through the wilderness and Lehi and his family out of Jerusalem. So let's jump in to this chapter with verses 1 through 4. Limhi has just finished speaking with his people. Mormon only gives us a small fraction of what he said. He's moving the story right along. But now it's Ammon's turn to speak. Ammon's job is to bring them up to date on what's been going down in Zarahemla since Zenith, Limhi's grandfather, left with his people, with particular emphasis on King Benjamin's speech. According to Amalekai, the last author of the Book of Omni, Zenith left early in the reign of Benjamin, just after Benjamin had led the Nephites to defeat the Lamanites in a massive war. So, Limhi's people would have at least heard stories of King Benjamin. You can see how they would be interested in his last words and the coronation of his son Mosiah. There's something interesting about how Mormon relates this part of the story. In verse 3, Mormon tells us that Ammon both rehearsed unto them Benjamin's words and explains unto them that they might understand. Ammon didn't just regurgitate Benjamin's speech. He taught them. This is a little reminder to us that Scripture is never just read and understood. Everyone who reads Scripture has to do the work of interpreting Scripture. There's no way around it. Even if some people like to think that they understand Scripture as is, it's best to just acknowledge right from the beginning that we are part of the process And to try and be as careful and as led by the Spirit as possible. One more point along this line. Everyone interprets, but not all interpretations are created equal. In fact, there's a lot of really terrible readers of Scripture out there. Occasionally, I'll quote or reference scholars in this podcast. These are people who I find to be really careful readers, and who I'd recommend as guides. And obviously... There's real wisdom in paying attention to the prophets and apostles. After Ammon wraps up, Limhi sends the people home, and in verses 5-21, through 21, we get some insight into the fruits of the Zeniffite attempt to reclaim the land of Nephi, and at least some of those fruits are more records, in other words, scripture. Here we see that this chapter has even more to say about reading scripture. There are a number of times in the story of the Book of Mormon where we might be led to ask, what's the point of all of this? Certainly the people who were living through these experiences probably asked this a time or two. What's the point of wandering in the desert, of leaving Jerusalem, of sailing across the world, of losing loved ones, of fighting all these wars, of leaving Zarahemla, only to be oppressed by the Lamanites for decades, and on and on and on. Over and over again, one of the most significant points of all of this is the production of scripture In addition to the Lord's desire to bless each individual in these stories, not to mention all of the ones that we never read about, the Lord is working through the details of these people's lives as well as the many centuries of their history to produce scripture for us to read. Nephi sees this scripture that is woven out of the lives of countless people over thousands of years as being a marvelous work and a wonder that will serve to gather Israel in the latter days. So before our eyes glaze over when we read some of these sections, let's remember what the point is. Alright, enough waxing theological. The Xenophytes have kept records of their history and Limhi has those records brought to Ammon for him to read. All of this really makes me think that Ammon is from a royal line. Limhi asks if Ammon can interpret language. That might seem like an odd request to us, but remember that this was a gift that Nephite kings possessed. At least beginning with Mosiah the first. So, even among the Xenophytes, this wouldn't have been unheard of. Ammon doesn't have that gift, however, which is disappointing news for Limhi. It turns out that in an effort to find the land of Zarahemla, Limhi sent out a 43 person search party. That search party never found Zarahemla, but instead found the ruins of a people, quote, as numerous as the hosts of Israel. And among those ruins, The people found 24 plates of pure gold, and Limhi wants them translated. These 24 plates will eventually be translated by King Mosiah and abridged by Moroni into what we now know as the Book of Ether. This isn't the first time that we've encountered the people we'll call the Jaredites. The people of Zarahemla had a running with a guy named Coriantum and a large stone that Mosiah I would later interpret. No doubt Ammon, being a descendant of Zarahemla, already knew that story and probably made the connection. Ammon has more hope to give to Limhi besides just the promise of liberation for his people. He can't interpret languages. The word interpret keeps popping up today, doesn't it? But there is somebody who can. King Mosiah. Mosiah has stones called by the Nephites interpreters that he likely inherited from his grandfather Mosiah. I hate to sound like a broken record here, but we may have already been introduced to these interpreters earlier in the missing portion of Mormon's record. Joseph Smith Sr. gave an interview to a man named Fayette Latham about the plates where apparently he spoke about the interpreters, what we know as the Urim and Thummim. Here's the quote. They found something of which they did not know the use. But when they went into the tabernacle, a voice said, What have you got in your hand there? They replied that they did not know, but had come to inquire. When the voice said, put it on your face and put your face in a skin and you will see what it is. They did so and could see everything of the past, present and future. And it was the same spectacles that Joseph found with the gold plates. The gold ball stopped here and ceased to direct them any further. You can find more about that interview in Don Bradley's book, The Lost, 116 Pages. Bradley believes the account is of Mosiah the I. Ammon tells Limhi that the ability to use the interpreters makes a person a seer, and a seer is a revelator and a prophet also, and a gift which is greater can no man have, except he should possess the power of God, which no man can. A seer can know of things which are past, and also of things which are to come, And by them shall all things be revealed, or rather shall secret things be made manifest, and hidden things come to light. And things which are not known shall be made known by them. And lo, things shall be made known by them which otherwise could not be known. Thus God has provided a means that man through faith might work mighty miracles. Therefore he becometh a great benefit to his fellow beings." I suppose that we should say something here about prophets, seers, and revelators. There's a tendency to flatten these terms across space and time, or put more plainly, we assume that these terms always mean the same things whenever we come across them. Clearly, Ammon has a particular understanding of what constitutes a prophet, a seer, and a revelator, respectively. When Limhi uses the word prophet, his most direct experience with that term would be with Abinadi, or perhaps some collection of early Book of Mormon prophets and Old Testament prophets, at the very least, Isaiah. So we see that different people are already working with different definitions. So let's focus in on Ammon's definition of a seer, someone who uses these interpreters to see past, present, and future. So was Lehi not a seer because he only saw visions and used the Leahona, but never the interpreters? What about Nephi, who had a grand sweeping vision of pretty much everything, or Isaiah, who saw God sitting upon his throne, and who was one of Nephi's main inspirations. Look, I haven't heard any living prophet claim to have quote-unquote interpreters, what Joseph would call the Urim and Thummim. Yet we sustain them as seers. In fact, we sustain them as prophets, seers, and revelators. Is that just redundantly saying the same thing three times in a row? I have more questions for you right now than answers, but my gut tells me that Ammon Might be a little too focused on the instrument whereby revelation comes rather than the gift and power of God that enables that revelation. And look, I don't mean to put down Ammon here, but I do think we should read him critically. These aren't just aimless musings, this has application in our understanding of key events of the restoration, namely the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and perhaps other restoration scripture. A few years ago, the church released a picture of the seer stone that Joseph used to produce the Book of Mormon, or at least a majority of the Book of Mormon. This was disruptive to the faith of some people, many of which had gone their whole lives without even hearing about a seer stone or seeing any artistic depictions of it. Think about most paintings or videos you've seen of the translation process a lot of them simply have Joseph looking directly at the plates, which is definitely historically inaccurate. In the back of our minds, we know that there was something with the plates called the Urim and Thummim, but even there, we don't see many depictions of Joseph with a metal breastplate with some ancient spectacles attached to it. On top of all of this, some people really struggle with even calling what Joseph did translation, since looking at a stone whether attached to an ancient breastplate or placed in a hat, really doesn't fit within our modern understanding of a translation process. I'm going to be real about this issue. I'm thrilled that the church is putting so many resources into helping those inside and outside of the church know its history. I've spent a lot of time and money studying that history. But I think we might get further in our understanding of the translation process and definitely in our personal conversion process If we are more concerned with the process and less concerned with the instruments used in the process, maybe like Ammon, we give a little too much attention to the interpreters and not enough to the source of the interpretation. How much does it really matter whether it's a staff or stone tablets or a gold box or brass serpents or a brass director ball? or ancient glasses, or brown stones, or gold plates, or bread and wine, or bread and water, or olive oil, or on and on and on. Isn't the point that it's God working through all of them for the purposes of blessing his children? Maybe that's the reason we weren't left with the gold plates, but the Book of Mormon instead. The real value of those plates was not in the material used in their construction, but in scripture that was produced from them, Limhai is fascinated by the 24 plates of gold, but the gold doesn't satisfy him. He craves to know what they say. That's a reminder of how blessed we are to have the words that we have. When Limhai heard that there was a chance to know what the plates said, he responded, Doubtless a great mystery is contained within these plates, and these interpreters were doubtless prepared for the purpose of unfolding all such mysteries to the children of men. How marvelous are the works of the Lord, and how long doth he suffer with his people! Yea, and how blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men! For they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. Yea, they are as a wild flock, which fleeth from the shepherd, and scattereth, and are driven, and are devoured by the beasts of the forest. Limhi and his people have been starving for hope. They've been starving for liberation and for God's word, and they aren't taking the opportunity presented to them lightly. We have more than enough opportunity, particularly when it comes to scripture. Perhaps Limhi, if he could speak to us now, would caution us against being blind to that opportunity. Perhaps he would tell us that learning a new bit of history doesn't need to scatter us and drive us into the forest. There are beasts out there. He might tell us. Focus on following the shepherd. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Ison.